Uh, some of the best things in life happen quite unexpectedly, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> like the time I was reading an Angry Birds joke book with my kids, and I came across some comedic material to rival our illustrious preacher. Are you ready for this? Brace yourself. What did one wall say to the other? Meet you at the corner. Oh, come on. Is that not worthy of Kelly? <laughs> okay, it gets better. It gets better. What do you call a bear without teeth? A gummy bear. <laughs> uh, it still gets me in stitches sometimes. Or the beginning of my graduate classes where uh, my professor confessed that he was legally blind and then proceeded to explain to us why that mattered to us, the class. He said, first... Um, I'll need some help with the attendance, because he couldn't read it. And he says, second, if I ask to borrow your car, you should say no. <laughs> I thought that was pretty brilliant on his part. Or the phone call that we received from the school indicating that one of our children had opted to go clothes-free in a public sphere. Or the second phone call to the same effect. Or the third phone call. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> um... Needless to say, my wife and I answer the phone with a little bit of fear and trepidation every time King George shows up in the <laughs> call display. Sometimes the unexpected in life, though, is a bit of a mixed bag. It's uh, painful and relieving news at the same time, like the raft of injuries and illnesses that our church family has had this past week. Uh, with some measure of dread, I opened each subsequent email from Kelly with his uh, name and the, the address, thinking, like, what could possibly have happened next? But at the same time, we rejoice that Keith is on the mend, and our family is helping them out. We celebrate that Joanna is home again. But we mourn that Ryan's ankles are broken. And we lament that little Joey is in pain. Life, unexpected, sometimes a mixed bag. Sometimes we approach life expecting one thing, but we end up getting quite another. I went to Bible college and theological seminary, so I could know more about Jesus. And I've certainly found knowledge uh, about the Bible, about church history, about ancient languages, about philosophy, uh, about church ministry. But rather unexpectedly, I heard the call of Jesus. And it wasn't to reading my Bible more. It wasn't to accumulating more facts and more figures. Jesus' call, for me, was not to more knowledge. Whether good or bad, great news or earth-shattering news, the unexpected things in life are the ones that deeply impact our life. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, today, as we approach your holy word, as we hear stories that have been recited for thousands of years, may we hear them with open hearts. Meet us in this place, O God, and do something unexpected with us. Give us the softness of heart and the openness of mind to be before you, and only you this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark's story of the gospel is unexpected. It's good news. It's filled with Jesus' surprises. It's filled with the unexpected. It's kind of unexpected because we know the story, right? I mean, the story goes something like this. Bring your problems to Jesus, and he will fix them. Bring your problems to Jesus, and he will fix them. Bring your problems to Jesus, and he will fix them. Go ahead and turn open to Mark 2 with me. As you get to Mark 2, I want to just kind of share a little bit about what's happened already in Mark that's brought us to this place. Of course, the way it works is the way that we understand it. 
The stories in Mark 1 prove it. A possessed man cries out in the middle of the synagogue. And Jesus heals him. Drives out the evil spirit. And the crowd is absolutely wowed. Simon's mother-in-law is ill. And Jesus heals her. The whole town has problems. The sick and the demon-possessed, they come to Jesus and Jesus heals them. And Jesus' popularity continues to grow among the people. A man with leprosy comes to Jesus and in a very touching moment begs Jesus, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out and says, I am willing. He heals the man. The crowds are so wowed and his popularity is so great that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. Mark 1.45 says, As we meet Jesus again in Capernaum at the beginning of Mark 2, teaching, he is teaching crowds so large that the house can't hold them, and we know what's going to happen before the story is even told. Bring your problems to Jesus, and he will fix them. Mark 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered him. Uh, after lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were... Uh, sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. It's the story we've heard before, right? Bring your problems to Jesus, and he forgives your sins. The friends... Perhaps they were mere acquaintances, make some pretty costly moves to bring the paralytic's problems before Jesus. For the friends, there is no crowd too large. There is no house too full. There is no roof too well constructed that they won't do anything to bring the paralytic to Jesus' feet. There's not even a disease too debilitating. And in the middle of a hot, dusty, packed, way past fire code capacity house, reeking of something between Animal Barn and the boys' locker room, we find Jesus delivering unexpected and life-changing news. Their sins are forgiven. For the paralytic whose life has been one overwritten with this code, that paralysis equals God's curse, which equals evidence you're a sinner, Jesus' words are the reversal of years of shame in being an outcast. But for the teachers of the law, the religious, it's an affront. So great, they charge Jesus with a capital crime, blasphemy. For them, these words of forgiveness cost death. Jesus' proclamation of forgiveness of sins is indeed, it's good news. But it's quite unexpected. 
and it's costly. As we come before Jesus, the one who has the authority to forgive sins and who actually does forgive sins, we can't help but be a little surprised. Jesus clearly identifying sins as the primary issue here, not paralysis, but sins. This is clear in Jesus' initial response. Here's this man who can't move, lowered through a roof. I mean, pretty spectacular when you think about it. And the man's problems, Jesus identifies as sin. Wouldn't be my first choice. He says, your sins are forgiven. And in treating the healing of the man as proof, he just says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Clearly, this is the focus of the whole passage. It has little to do with the fact that a man who couldn't walk now walks. It has to do with Jesus able to forgive sins. Which leads me to question, is sins really the fundamental issue here? Like, come on, get real. Isn't it the fact that the man's legs don't work, can't move his arms, depends on other people to change him, to feed him, to clothe him, to house him? Isn't that the real issue here? Isn't that really the spectacular event that's taking place? Isn't sin just kind of like a religious word that is used to guilt us into living better? You know, hasn't science and sociology and common sense disproved that that kind of language is cultish and is actually detrimental to our well-being as a society? Aren't we just a group of sentient beings inevitably evolving to become more cooperative because our survival as a race depends on it? Isn't that really the issue here? Not sin? That may be the story of the 21st century, the world that we live in today, but it's certainly not the story of the Bible, and it's not the story that Jesus lives in. Jesus lives in the story where sin is brokenness. It's the brokenness between God and his people. It's the brokenness between man and woman. It's the brokenness between people and the world that we live in. Sin is the all-encompassing term for the shame that cripples us, the guilt that haunts us, the fear that drives us, the anxiety that weighs on us. That is sin. That is the real issue. Sin is the rebellion. It's the story of an obstinate, rebellious, desert-wandering, king-seeking, idol-worshipping people, hand-picked by God who cannot see the love and the care and the goodness that are written to the laws that they rebel against. We could, I suppose, at one level, take Jesus' words of, of forgiveness as the first diagnosis of the psychosomatic disorder, where guilt completely cripples a person, and where the word of forgiveness, extended even on just a human level, produces miraculous results. I suppose we could explore that intersection of health and forgiveness. But I want to draw our attention to the fact that there is no particular sin that's attributed to the man. Nor is it stated in the story that he's guilt-ridden and that's why he's lying on a bed. Sin isn't always the root cause of illness. And quite frankly, it's completely disproved in John 9 and Luke 13. Go ahead and check out those stories sometime. Or we could, I suppose, spend some time talking about how the only way to overcome the fractured personal and national relationships in the world is to start with forgiveness. I think that's true at some level, that fighting only stops when we stop fighting. It starts with forgiveness. I suppose we could talk about that a little bit. But either of these lines of exploration is to miss, I think, the complete upset in this story. It's to miss the surprise. It's to miss the unexpected. It's to miss the word of God in the middle of this story. There's a paralytic, and we say, that's the problem. And Jesus looks at it and says, sin is the problem. Jesus, who has the right and the authority to forgive sins. 
Jesus' response surprises us. Jesus, would you please heal these broken legs? And Jesus' response, your sins are forgiven. No, you don't get it. That's not my issue. My issue is health. God, would you, would you please give my family a bigger paycheck? And Jesus' response, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, stop it. You don't get it. That's not my issue. My issue is wealth. I can't make ends meet. Jesus, would you please fix my broken relationships? And Jesus' response, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, are you even listening to me? Sin is not my issue. My issue is like the patient who comes to the doctor with a self-diagnosis already made and confirmed. We find ourselves confronted by Jesus' unexpected words. Your sins are forgiven. It's the quiet and hidden, unexpected response of Jesus that has the greatest world-changing, earth-shattering impact. The crowd finds the healing amazing. I find the friend's faith amazing. They really believe that Jesus has the answer to their friend's seemingly insurmountable ailment, and nothing stands in their way. The religious leaders find Jesus' audacity amazing. I find their callous blindness appalling. Does Jesus not walk the talk? Does the paralytic not take up his mat and walk out before them in front of their very eyes? It's the faith in this story, the trust in Jesus that is the why behind everything. It's the faith of the friends that Jesus responds to. It's not the paralytic who comes to Jesus in faith. It's the friends who bring their paralytic uh, friend to Jesus in faith. At the very least, I hope we see that the invitation of us, the believing community, to an unbelieving world changes lives. When we believe that Jesus has the answers, our neighbors have the opportunity to believe, to confront the real issue that faces our world. It's the faith of the friends that questions the assumption that the church is about getting it right. The teachers of the law got it right, but they were wrong. We can be right. We can be rationally, adamantly, foot-stomping, hopping mad, yelling at the top of our lungs right, and yet still be wrong. We can be so right, in fact, that we completely miss Jesus doing incredible, unexpected, gracious, life-giving things in our midst, before our very eyes. Our faith is not in a book. Our faith is in a person, in Jesus, who claims to be God, who forgives sin and proves it before our watching eyes. Faith is not packaging Jesus up neatly, but trusting Jesus walking with Jesus, bringing ourselves before Jesus, bringing our neighbors to Jesus, knowing that he's got the answer. Jesus meets and calls people at a lot of different points. He calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John last week. Call Levi, if you read the next section of Mark 2. Calls Zacchaeus, calls the Samaritan woman. Calls Kelly. Calls Paul calls Michael. These days, Jesus' call on my life is one that is unexpected. It's the quiet call to courageous and simple faith. Simple faith. Simple trust. It causes me to question all sorts of things. It causes me to question the notion that might makes right. 
It causes me to question democracy. It causes me to question the loudest voice or the squeaky wheel. It causes me to question whether an infinite economy or an economy rather predicated on infinite growth is actually the way this world is designed to be. It causes me to question other things through friends who are simply faithful to Jesus, who say such ridiculous things as, Mike, I'm not convinced I need an RSP. Doesn't Jesus say that God takes care of the sparrows? Doesn't he say, don't worry about tomorrow? It's crazy. It causes me to question things like a year and a half or so ago, two years ago maybe now, I was backing out of a spot in Cardell Place in my little 1995 Nissan Sentra. And lo and behold, there was a very nice Acura, oh, what are they, MDX or whatever, their big SUV, also backing up into my little Nissan. And after our little collision, we exchanged information, and it took us a few days to kind of iron things out, how are we going to handle this. Of course, they didn't want to run it through their insurance, understandably so. Um, I didn't really want to let them just walk away. But it caused me to question very seriously, very seriously. In the middle of this is the grace of Jesus, because my car was still functional. It was just a little dented quarter panel. My door worked fine. Heat worked fine. Transmission worked fine. It caused me to seriously question, should I ask anything of these people? And when they hand me the cash settlement that we've agreed on, should I not hand it back in the name of Jesus? It causes me to ask silly things like that, the simple faith. As we continue to read the story of Mark, I'm left with this lingering question. Who am I? Who are you? Bringing to Jesus. Who is bringing you to Jesus? Don't assume because you have legs to walk that you're the four friends carrying the paralytic to Jesus. You might be that paralytic. It causes me to question what is Jesus saying to you as you lay before him completely incompetent and helpless, unable to solve the problems of the world. What is he calling you to? I'm fairly confident it's not to comfort and it's not to health, but it's to faithfulness to the very end. It's the call to the cross, it's the, which is not an end at all, but a beginning, really. It's the end of sin. It's the costly offer of forgiveness. And it's the invitation to faith. And every disciple that will walk after Jesus will walk the way of Jesus. And it has one direction, and that's towards the cross, not away from it. I invite you to simple faith today.